Hi, everybody. Welcome to a New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I am thrilled to be here with Dr. Joseph Raphael. Let me give you his background, and you will see why I'm so excited to pick his brain today. Uh, he received his BA in philosophy from Princeton, his MD from Drexel. He trained at the New York Hospital Cornell University Medical Center and was formerly a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Dartmouth Medical School while in practice at Hitchcock Clinic. Uh, he's a member of the Endocrine Society, is board certified in internal medicine, and is a diplomat at diplomat at the American Board of Anti-Aging Medicine. In 1997, he co-founded PhysioAge Medical Group, where he exclusively practiced age management medicine with a focus on personalized hormone optimization and physiologic age assessment. Uh, and we're going to be focusing on this today. In 2007, he co-founded PhysioAge Systems, a web-based biomarker data collection and reporting system now used by age management practices around the world to assess, monitor, and communicate to patients the effectiveness of their treatments. Since 2009, he's been involved in clinical telomere biology research, and he's published three studies of the effect of oral telomerase activators on normal aging adults. He's lectured nationally and internationally on the clinical application of telomere biology. Uh, in 2015, he founded the Raphael Medical Group and blogs regularly about telomere biology, hormone optimization, and biomarkers of aging on drraphael.com and physioage.com. Dr. Raphael, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you, Dr. Fischel. It's a pleasure to be here. At, yeah, we're, let's just jump right in. I'm so excited to be talking to you with this um, really long-time focus you've had in age management medicine. You're in there as a clinician scientist and have been doing this for forever. So just give me some background on your practice and, you know, the kind of patients that you're working with. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in the late 90s, I sort of was practicing internal medicine for about five years or so and just realized that we were putting our fingers in holes in the, in the leaking dam. Um, we just were not really going after the fundamental problem, which was to shore up the overall functioning of the human body as it ages. The vast majority of the diseases that we treat in developed Western societies uh, are the result of the erosion of health from the aging process. And sort of a little light bulb went off in my head, and I had a, was at a time in my life when I decided to, to change my focus, moved to New York City, and opened up a practice to, to do just that. What I do in my practice is I focus on assessing how far off of optimum health an individual is, and of course, the major thing that gets you off of that is the aging process and then bad lifestyle habits, diet, et cetera. Um, also assessing genetic risk, because that can increase your risk of organ failures of certain types and diseases of certain types. Um, and so I started that practice along with my colleague, Dr. Lipsy, back then, uh, and we were doing quite well for, for a number of years. Um, got invited in um, 2001 or so when he um, wanted to sort of see what this clinical age management medicine was, because he was the founder of the National Institutes of Aging, um, had undergone a, uh, uh, a research initiative to look for biomarkers of aging. And he asked me, he said, you know, Joe, uh, you seem to be making your patient happy. They feel better. Their symptoms are gone. But you call yourself an anti-aging or age management doctor. How do you really assess whether objectively it's actually doing anything? And, and I said to him, well, you know, oh, I don't really, I thought about that. Yeah, <laughs> so. Right. Um, so that set me off on a, on a uh, um, it's been a long journey now, a, sort of a labor of love to look for ways to, to measure how healthy and how well someone is aging, what they call biomarkers of aging. Um, over the next few years, I pinpointed a few things in, in arterial aging, pulmonary aging, cognitive aging, and we put together the PhysioAge biomarker system. Um, and patients come in to see me to pick up where their other physicians have left off. Basically, they go to their doctor, they say, well, you have either this disease, and out of control, or you're perfectly healthy. Nothing's quote unquote out of the normal range on, on your laboratory tests or your, or your imaging. So, you know, eat right, get a little exercise and come back in a year. 
Uh, and you know, I have a very sophisticated patient base. Uh, they, they, they search for information on the internet. They look for things uh, that can help maintain their health as long as they can. And they know there's this growing body of evidence to, about things to do to improve function and prevent disease. And so what I do for them is I help to vet what's out there. I help to measure in them what are their weak systems, their stronger systems, and what the trajectory of their aging is. Uh, and that's, that's really been my focus for the last 20 years. It's, it's, it's really interesting to me. It's, it's, it's some of the things that you're doing are, um, I mean, we're practicing in very similar ponds. Um, you know, I'm a, I, I am a naturopathic physician. I practice functional medicine and I cast a wide net, you know, with laboratory analysis, but just when I was over at physioage.com, uh, you know, the suite of investigations that you're doing, uh, it just, it looks, it looks broad and, and deep and exciting. And, um, Folks, on the show notes, I will include links um, and any, any papers or links to abstracts uh, that Dr. Raphael mentions today. We'll have those over at the show notes too, but I encourage you to head over to physioage.com and to just kind of see the breadth of testing um, investigation that Joe's doing. So, uh, you were, so I, I guess, you know, it begs the question, you know, when you were challenged to determine whether or not you could affect lifespan and along with lifespan obviously health span is folded into that so when you were challenged to be able to do that beyond the other investigations that you were doing early in your practice I mean what did you start you know what did you start doing how did you set out to prove that in fact you were improving you were actually practicing age management and making you know true changes what did you do well, so it, it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, I was really surprised, very pleasantly surprised, when I started to look for ways to measure um, aging in, in a normal, healthy individual, that there, is, there, there was just a, a lot of literature tucked away in various subspecialties. So in cardiology, um, there was a whole literature about how the arterial system ages from a stiffness standpoint, as well as from a... Um, sort of atherosclerosis or plaque deposition standpoint. We're, we're pretty focused in Western societies on plaque deposition and what we call atherosclerosis, but in fact, a more sort of fundamental aging process is the stiffening and our, our inability to cushion the pulsations of the cardiac cycle um, over the course of a lifetime. Uh, even in indigenous populations where they don't have bad habits, they're very active, they don't smoke, they don't eat high, sat high saturated fat diet, they still have aging of their arteries from that standpoint. And so I was surprised to see that there was this literature and instruments that have been developed to, to measure these things for pharmaceutical trials, for antihypertensive medications, um, and that certain parameters that came out of those, like the kinds of uh, central arterial pressure numbers that, uh, that we use, correlate linearly um, with chronological age in both males and females starting at around age 20. Uh, so, that I found, and then I found that in, uh, obviously, you know, your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with spirometry and FEV1 being highly correlated with age, and a lot of spirometry, spirometry instruments spit out a, a lung age because you have to know, you know, what the age of the person is before you can say they have abnormal lung function because everybody loses lung, lung function, you know, a half to 1% per year uh, with just normal aging. So in, in every other system, in the brain, the frontal lobes, capacity to, to, to process things at a rapid rate, to make complex decisions, declines, uh, and has a, a very robust literature looking at not loss of neurons, but actually loss of synapses that occurs to, to sort of uh, to um, help you understand that. And so when I saw this in virtually every organ system, it was just you know like a, a, a cornucopia of information for me to, to assimilate. But there are also papers looking at overall biomarkers yeah. biomarkers uh, and panels of biomarkers. There were studies that were going on in the, bio, uh, the Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging. So there was a, a, a lot going on in the field that just nobody in clinical medicine, be it internal medicine or even functional medicine or even to a certain extent anti-aging medicine, um, people were, were aware of. And so I, I thought that it would be best to try to put together a system to help, to, to help practitioners to measure these things and see in an objective fashion, without having to wait for the results of a long-term 
randomized controlled trial, whether in that N of one, and this is where it becomes yes. very personalized medicine, yes. um, the therapy that we're applying is affecting not only the organ system that you want to beneficially, but also it doesn't have adverse effects in other organ systems. That's kind of key. Yes. One therapy may do something great, like exercise. Everybody thinks exercise is fantastic, which it is. Yes. But it's got to be the right kind of exercise. If you're somebody that has bad joints, a lot of chronic repetitive aerobic exercise is going to hurt your joints. It may help your cardiovascular system. So that's just one example. Um, but you got to look at the whole picture. That's why, you know, as an internist, I always like to look at the forest and the trees. And, and in our medicine these days, it's all about the trees. And I don't care what the other trees in the other part of the forest are doing. I'm just going to take care of this tree. And that's, that's a real mistake, I think, it, when you're looking at what the patient wants, which is overall optimal health and function. So it begs the question, I don't know about folks listening, but I certainly want to know, you're, you are working with clinicians, so clinicians can refer to you for this comprehensive um, and really kind of intelligent workup that you're doing. Is that, is that true? Well, well, what we have is uh, we offer um, a, a software, a web-based software program, and then a series of instruments to use to measure the biomarkers that they can adopt for use in their office. Um, to measure all the things that I measure in my office on my patients and to interpret them. And then to, what it does is it spits out a very curated report that both the physician and the patient can look at interactively that doesn't limit it to normal, abnormal. It gives it, if it's a biomarker of aging, it will give it an age. So we have something called the cardio age, the pulmo age, the neuro age, for telomeres, which we're going to get to, the telomer age. Um, and immune function, immuno age, and then we give a report card on other organ systems that are not necessarily as tightly correlated with aging, but we know what is optimal versus really a disease state, but also all of the gradations in between. Biological variables are continuous in the vast majority of them. And to say that there's a cutoff, like let's say testosterone, 300, or 301, your testosterone is normal, you don't need therapy. 299, it's abnormal. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So we give a gradation. We give a, a grade. People are familiar with those. Um, and we have licensees around the country and around the world using the system to try to practice objective, personalized, N of one um, age management uh, medicine. That's really interesting. Are you actually pulling, I mean, you've got a massive database at this point. Have you been, you know, publishing or at least, you know, kind of blogging on trends that you're seeing? Or is that something that you, that you want to do? That is definitely something I want to do. We have uh, over 5,000 subjects in, in, the, in the database now. Many NF1s. Yeah, and then and, and, and many of them with, you know, data points over 10, 10 12 years. Uh, many of them. That's uh, certainly a number of them. Um, and, you know, I do want to dig into it. But as you said, I'm a clinician a scientist yeah. with more emphasis, more emphasis on the clinician part, um, which is great. <laughs> it is good. I mean, we need you in the, in the clinical trenches for sure. Yeah. And that also helps me to understand what, um, you know, how useful the software is that I'm creating and how, how it works in an everyday fashion. So, uh, yes. and I get feedback from my, from my licensees and that's all great. But, um, um, yes, it's at some point we're going to start looking at this data in a more comprehensive fashion. And at some point in the very near future, we're going to offer just the software. So there's not the, the sort of barrier to entry of getting the instruments. Uh, and hopefully then we'll have thousands of um, licensees, um, hopefully fairly quickly. So look for that in the next six months. Awesome. Yeah, it's very, it's really cool. All right. You need a PhD student in there to start moving through your data. You need something. Well, listen, so you mentioned, you mentioned telomeres and, and you and I were talking about that telomeres and assessing and, and obviously being you know, one of the tried and true markers of biological aging. Um, and, and, and this is a part of the overall investigation that you undertake. Uh, talk to me about how important a part it is. And, um, you know, just some of your thoughts around um, working directly with telomeres, assessing them and so forth. Sure. Uh, you know, when I first read about telomeres of, probably 15, 20 years ago. Um, I, I thought like a lot of doctors probably thought at the time, um, you know, how can this really be that fundamental component of aging? Because there's so many post mitotic tissues like 
in the myocardium, in the brain that, you know, decline with age and it's not about cell cellular division. So I kind of put it aside until um, 2007 when uh, Noel Patton came to my office, the founder of TA Sciences, um, who makes TA65 and uh, is a, uh, a company that I've been doing clinical research with uh, on their molecule and the effects of it. And he said to me, you know, what would it take for you to consider offering this to my, uh, this to your, to your patients? And, and I, at that point, started to look again at telomere biology and, and really started to understand that there are supporting cells around these other uh, non-postmitotic tissues that are incredibly important to the health of those. And so you can still have a marker that is involved in um, cellular division and, and the loss of the ability to do that, that is going to affect postmitotic tissues. And it turns out that, you know, it profoundly affects them, not only from a, a cellular support standpoint, but also from gene expression. I know you, you're very interested in epigenetics, and, and that's a, 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 mm -hmm. I think the interface between telomere, telomeres and epigenetics is an is a evolving and very interesting area. Yeah. But, um, but also how telomeres affect mitochondrial function. They're very important for mitochondrial biogenesis, maintenance of that through the PCG1 alpha and beta, the master regulators of mitochondrial function. Uh, and so it, it turned out that telomere biology, while not the only, uh, obviously the only part of aging, um, and the only thing responsible for aging, it is a, one of the most critical components of it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that paper that came out in 2013, The Hallmarks of Aging. Um, but if you aren't, and if your readers aren't, it's a seminal paper that should be read by anybody in medicine, and certainly anybody interested in treating aging adults. Um, and it lays out the nine sort of major hallmarks of aging. Yeah, give, me, give uh, us a summary, and, and we'll definitely link to it, folks. Yeah, so um, it, it basically says that there are four major um, aspects of hallmarks of aging. One is genomic instability, the second is telomere attrition, the third is epigenetic alterations, and the fourth is loss of proteostasis. Then there are responses to the damage that occur when those primary hallmarks start to occur, uh, and that's deregulated nutrient sensing, mitochondrial dysfunction, and cellular senescence. And then finally, there's the sort of ultimate result of that, which is stem cell exhaustion, altered intracellular communication. And all of these um, are sort of the, the main things to focus on in the aging process. But the first four are the primary hallmarks, and telomere attrition is number two, and for a very good reason, because this really affects all of those. Uh, genomic instability is caused when telomeres get too short. Uh, the DNA damage response is turned on briskly when they get past a critically short length, because the cellular maintenance and repair systems don't like to see um, free ends of chromosomes. That's what telomeres are all about, right. just a brief, sort of a brief um, review, telomeres exist because the ends of eukaryotic DNA can't just be flying out there. <laughs> right. They have to be concealed so it doesn't look like a broken strand of DNA that needs to be repaired. So they get looped up into what's called the T-loop, um, and it's often you know, um, analogized to the aglet, the plastic covering on the tips of shoe, uh, shoe, shoelaces mm -hmm. that um, keeps it sort of hidden from the DNA damage response. Every time cells divide, though, that telomere length, which is in humans between, you know, at the end of life, four or 5,000 kilobases, you know, at, at peak reproductive age, probably 20, 25, around 10 to, 10 to 12 kilobases, um, if it gets, starts to get too short, it can't make that, that T loop, and, that, and all hell breaks loose in the cell at that point. It can't divide anymore, and it becomes senescent. And so um, telomere attrition affects all the other aspects of it. And I mentioned the, 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 the uh, mitochondrial dysfunction because of the lack of mi mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, it, I, I would say that, you know, of the hallmarks of aging, it probably is, uh, in my view, it's, it's the number one factor. And one of the reasons I say that is because there are Examples in you know, genetic uh, mutation examples in, 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 in clinical medicine, uh, something called a telomeropathy, which is when um, you inherit even just from one parent, so you're heterozygous for a, a defective uh, gene for telomerase, which is the enzyme that can 
help to put the telomere lengths back on uh -huh. to uh, your telomeres. And if you get that, you will not live a normal lifespan. Um, and depending on what type of mutation it is, you could die in your early 30s um, or 40s. If it's the first time in your family that you've gotten that mutation, it might be in the 50s of pulmonary fibrosis. But critically short telomeres early in life are not compatible with a normal lifespan. Uh, and there are mouse models that recapitulate all that data. And then there's models where you turn it back on in those mice that have had their telomerase knocked out, and it recovers all of that longevity and health span. So huh. it is, it's in this, that's a single mutation. That's a point mutation in a, in a gene for a critical enzyme that keeps telomeres from getting too fast are you listen I have to I have to ask you I'll be remiss and I know some people will get annoyed with me I mean what are some of the are you looking at these mutations in practice or I mean are you just are you getting the evidence of it in history or I mean like what like just I just want to sidetrack you there and then I want to come sure, back sure. well so the mutations that I'm talking about the reason I brought them up is that they are a proof of concept that telomeres are incredibly important for mm -hmm. human longevity if they're not functioning well yes make it to a normal lifespan Yes. Um, these mutations of the sort of the more severe cases, the, the, the first case, uh, I mean, the first description of them was dyskeratosis congenita, which is a rare, very rare childhood disorder um, that, you know, it's, not, it's not, not very common. But it turns out that those same mutations in the same complex, the telomerase complex, um, is a lot more common than dyskeratosis congenita. Um, for instance, pulmonary fibrosis is a relatively, you know, about 48,000 uh, mortality per year uh, in the United States, um, and uh, and about five to 10 percent of those have mutations in the telomerase complex. So it's the most common uh, presentation of telomeropathy uh, like that. But I believe that uh, we're missing a lot of mutations that might be slightly less penetrant yeah. or cause less telomere shortening. Yes. Um, and, and so I think that we're probably going to be measuring and looking for those mutations in, in the future. Tests are available for them now at the genetics uh, companies like Ambry Genetics does a, a telomere a screen for a, a quite a few of, of, of the mutations that occur. What I do in my practice, everybody gets their telomere length measure. Right. I, yeah. I, yeah. I would check for telomere mutation if you have pretty normal telomeres, even for your age, because you're unlikely to have a mutation under those circumstances. If they're in the bottom 10th percentile, or certainly if they're in the bottom one percentile, then um, I would definitely consider that. I haven't measured the first one in my practice yet, because uh, it just became available in the last year or so. Um, and, but there are quite a few people that I have, and if you start measuring telomere lengths regularly in your practice, you will see people that walk in your door that don't have a diagnosis, that have telomere lengths under the bottom one percentile for their age. Yeah. And the literature on telomeropathies is that's almost uh, 90% sensitive and specific for some mutation. So it's very interesting uh, at that point, how many people are out there with their the challenged telomerase and having shortening telomeres? Well, let me just ask you this, and then I want to, I mean, just, I'm, I am digressing a little bit, but what you're saying is ridiculously interesting. Um, if you did get the genetic testing, that might alter your intervention with a patient based on what the mutation is and where it's active, like you mentioned pulmonary fibrosis being one of the main areas um, associated with, you know, rapid biological aging based on telomere length. Would you say that's true? I mean, would it, would it help you hone in on an organ system or would it guide your treatment in some way having this information? Well, sure. I mean, I mean, there's a, an axiom in medicine is you don't measure something unless it's going to change your management. Ex uh, yeah, or right. the patient's behavior or change the patient's whatever else they do in their life. Um, and, um, and, and so it's a couple of things. First of all, um, there would be counseling because there's a good chance, 25%, that it will be passed on to your offspring, depending on what, you know, your husband or wife uh, is, uh, what, what they're tested for. So, if somebody comes in really low um, with telomere lengths, often they, after we have a discussion, they're, they're going to want their brothers, sisters, and children tested to see as well. Uh, if in that point there, uh, you know, a mutation is is de is determined, then things like 
I mean, we all know you shouldn't smoke, but somebody with a significant telomere mutation should not even get near smoke, secondhand smoke, or any of that, because their lungs are going to be very vulnerable. Right. Um, and then there is, um, there's a lot of an, an increasingly growing um, body of data showing correlations between telomere length, and shortened telomere length, and risk for cardiovascular disease and cancer. Um, very large databases on, on both of those. Where I would say, and I don't think I'm too far off saying that, I, if I had to know, choose between knowing a person's cholesterol or knowing their telomere length to predict their cardiovascular risk, I would I would choose telomere. Um, in an interesting study done, it's pretty uh, fascinating. They, what about with, particles? With, like, what about part? What if you could throw in a bullet? <laughs> okay, okay, the good. Exception probably of lipoprotein little a. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, isn't that interesting? Okay, okay. So just go ahead, continue. That's the most atherogenic one. You you know you. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, wouldn't mind knowing that as well. But regular cholesterol, I mean, you know, it is, uh, it is important and, and all things being equal, you probably want it to be lower, but obviously it depends on whether it's oxidized and so many other things are involved yes, in it. Yes, yes. Um, but, but, but in terms of uh, like the, in one cross-sectional study and in uh, both pro prospective uh, uh, cross-sectional and, and, and uh, retrospective, um, they, um, the, the, the risk the hazard ratio for the shortest third versus the longest third for cardiovascular disease was about 1.5 fold. So 50% increased risk. It's not that much with cholesterol uh, or it's just, just around there. And um, the other thing about it is that you're also assessing your risk for, heart, for cancer. The, the, yeah. uh, the risk for cancer in one study uh, done in Italy, a prospective longitudinal study looking at um, people between the ages of 40 and 70, and all cancers, free of cancer at baseline, if you're in the shortest third versus the longest third, you had a three-fold increased risk of cancer over the next 10 years, and you had a 11-fold increased risk of dying of cancer. So um, those are, you know, those are pretty, pretty big numbers and pretty significant numbers, and there's a lot of biological um, and physiological uh, explanation for why that would occur. Yeah, well, I so think they're, they're, they're actionable. I think uh, I mean, and and um, and then from from many different standpoints, from genetic counseling to yes. to lifestyle to being more aggressive about cancer screening, more aggressive about cardiovascular risk risk factors. You want to get the other risk factors under control, and then you want to see what you can do with telomere lengths. Yeah, right, right. Uh, so that's I mean, it's exciting. So I, obviously, if somebody comes with you know the bottom you know, 1% of the population for telomere length, that's going to be really pretty anxiety provoking and disturbing, but you've just unpacked, you know, just a lot that we can do, just this full integrative functional approach. But yeah, so I appreciate your tour of, you know, telomere biology and the importance, the widespread importance. And again, folks, we'll just link to everything that we can uh, that Joe's mentioning here. But yeah, let's, so let's talk about it. They're, they're more than a surrogate marker. We want them to be long, for their physiologic effects. So they're not just suggestive of aging. They induce, there's a lot of processes that I guess a short telomere would induce. So we want, so we want our telomeres to be long and robust. And you've been working on, on that in your world and measuring and getting all sorts of follow-up data. And you've been doing clinical research and publishing on it. So talk to me about what you're doing to keep telomeres in tip-top shape. So, um, Telomere length is, is one of those integrators. I, I like to think of it as a, your sort of biological 401k. It's the reserve that you have for maintaining a healthy um, a health span, your health span going forward. Um, you know, the amount of times your stem cells can divide because of their, they have uh, adequate telomere length to, to support that. Um, and the interesting and fantastic thing is about mm -hmm. telomeres is that they integrate so many other aspects of, of, of sort of biology and, and, and medicine that we know. Every bad habit, smoking, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, stress, et cetera, all is associated with shorter telomeres and the opposite, you know, fixing those things improves that. So all the things you do in functional medicine help to decrease the attrition rate of telomeres because it reduces oxidative stress, um, stress reduction itself reduces cortisol, cortisol, increased levels of cortisol, um, inhibit telomerase. So the whole thing fits together very nicely. You want to hit all those aspects of things. And then, but none of those things will actually turn on telomerase to lengthen telomeres. Right. And that's where you come to telomerase activators. And there's yes. two ways to do that. One is through um, 
gene therapy, and there's some exciting stuff going on right now with uh, telomerase induction with AAV um, viral vectors. Um, and hopefully we'll be seeing some wow. results and trials of those in the next year or two. Um, but in the what's available here and now um, sort of side of things, there are uh, there is a telomerase activator, TA65, that's derived from the traditional Chinese medicine, um, Astragalus membranaceus, a specific species and a specific molecule that um, that is extracted through a patented process to essentially 98 to 99% pure uh, extract. Um, and what's interesting about it is this molecule came about through this company in the late 90s called Geron Corporation looking for something to treat the aging process. Uh, they screened thousands of compounds uh, in an assay to see what turns on telomerase in vitro. They got a few hits and they got this one molecule that also was not at all toxic. Uh, they started it on the NDA route uh, with a lot of safety testing, uh, a lot more than any typical supplement would get. And then the company changed directions because the FDA was signaling that they're not going to prove anything for aging alone. Um, so they started to looking at cancer th therapeutics and sold off the rights to uh, company TA Sciences in 2002 to sell as a supplement because it's a natural product. It's generally considered as safe because it's been in the Chinese you know, diet for millennia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I was lucky enough to be involved in the first cohort that was given TA65 along with a, a supplement pack that I used in my practice to see whether or not telomere lengths uh, were affected or in any of these major biomarkers that we look at were affected. And we published two papers uh, in 2011 and 2013 looking at the effect on senescent T cells, which were significantly reduced in individuals on the, on the supplement for a year. Uh, and then on uh, other metabolic uh, markers in the subsequent papers, so there was some beneficial effect on blood pressure, cardiovascular risk factors, uh, bone density. Um, those studies then gave the company the impetus to do a randomized controlled trial which was conducted in Spain, and I was part of that, the last author on the paper, and we, we published the first study looking, the first clinical study, looking at the results of the telomerase activator um, on individuals 50 to 70 something years old, and we did show an increase in telomere length, um, and certainly highly statistically significant on the 250 IU dose, um, in comparison to placebo, who actually lost telomere length, which we would expect over the course of that year. Wow. So those are the things that I've been involved. We have a study right now pending uh, peer review looking at uh, a large uh, 500 subject randomized controlled trial um, on the effects of TA65 on senescent T cells. Uh, we're hoping to get that published in the next six months or so. Uh, there's been studies looking at uh, TA65's effect in, um, in, the, in the retina, in macular degeneration, and there's an interesting signal that they express there with some improvement in uh, the MAIA. Um, which is a test looking at changes in the macula. Um, there's been some skin studies done that shown some improvement in the skin skin cream. So it's an exciting area that continues to grow, and, and I'm you know happy to, to work in this area um, because uh, I think the company is is looking at clinical studies to show the effectiveness, and I'm all about yes. you know how we trust for the rest. Show me the data. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, um, okay, good. That was a that was a lot. You, you just said a lot, and I just kind of wanted. I want to kind of unpack. Yes, let me unpack a little bit. Oh, it was great. And again, I just assure, I'm going to assure folks that we, that we're going to get all of, as many, we're going to gather together as many citations and my team is going to, you know, ping you to make sure that we get them all because you, you just mentioned a ton over the course of our conversation. Uh, so they'll be there on our show notes page. Well, so first of all, I just want to say, I just want to hit home the, what you said in the beginning because it's exquisitely important. We know that our functional medicine, um, you know, that, that the workhorse dietary and lifestyle changes that we do, shoring up nutrient status, all of that detoxification, cleaning up, you know, cleaning up diets and so forth. That is going to halt telomere damage. It's going to turn the volume down. That's going to preserve the length that's there, that is present and, and reduce the, the, the accelerated loss that happens with the aging process. So that's what you said clearly. And well, you can correct me if I'm wrong in any of this in a minute. Um, but these this telomerase act activator, specifically this um, 
this um, astragalus-derived compound that's in TA65 actually increases length. So this is reversing. So there's, there's two pieces here. There's halting, and then there's actually reversing the aging process and lowering the biological age. Is that, am I, do I have that right? Did I articulate that correctly? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it is definitely a slowing and in some cases a halting of the telomere attrition rate. Um, but then it, to actually add on telomere length, you have to turn on telomerase, which yes. is not normally, it was relatively suppressed in, in adults, yes. to turn on the enzyme, to express the enzyme, to add length to telomeres. And, and, and that, I'm not ready to say that that reverses biological age, but what it does is it definitely um, lengthens telomeres to more youthful lengths, which are, used, which are associated with much more youthful functioning. Now, in those mouse studies that were done, when they turned on telomerase strongly and got a 33% increase in telomere length, there was an actual cocoon-like, you know, the movie Cocoon, if anybody's old enough to remember that, um, where they jumped into the pool, these old people, and got young again. These mice had rejuvenation of their brain, of their spleen, of their fur, of their skin. Um, you know, they basically became younger mice. Um, it was big enough news that it was features on 60 Minutes with the video of things back when those, those, those results came out. So as a proof of principle, if you significantly lengthen your telomeres, there should be um, improvements in other biomarkers of aging. And I do see that in some of my patients. I have patients who have, over the course of five years, gradually added up to 20% of telomere length. And their biomarkers are at least staying stable in most, in most systems. This doesn't mean we've halt overall aging process in every tissue, but absolutely slow things down and in some cases can turn them around. And um, just anecdotally with your 5,000 N of ones, I mean, do you see, you know, clinic, you, you're, you, you've got to be seeing clinical improvement or you wouldn't be staying here, you know, doing this research. Are, are you, you, they feel better, they look better, et cetera. Would you say that? Yeah, well, we definitely hear from patients um, things like, you know, I have, I have more energy, I have more resilience, more recovery from some workouts. One thing we see uh, or heard quite a bit is improvements in vision, yeah. um, ophthalmologically, you know, or optomically, optom whatever the word is, <laughs> um, proven, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, proven um, uh, improvements in, in both uh, near vision and farsightedness, so presbyopia, wow. presbyopia and myopia, wow. um, both. Um, and, and, and their ophthalmologists are like, I, I never see this happen. So, and well, and what's the mechanism? I mean, it's slowing down. I mean, if it's actually improving vision, you know, you, the lens kind of keeps mm -hmm. growing and the muscle control is sort of lost and that's the mechanism of presbyopia. So I, I got it. Is there anything published on that? I'd be really curious. Uh, there isn't anything published on that. Um, okay. there's, um, they're just, I mean, I'm not the only physician that gets those reports. Yeah. Um, through from, from the company and from when I speak at, uh, at conferences, um, yeah, it's exactly that. Presbyopia is, you know, the, the, the irisiliary body's ability to, to change the, the, the lens. Um, the, the, but you can, you can imagine that if it's going in there and it's helping the cells to function better yes. and, and perhaps clean up the junk, some junk in, in, in the lens itself, yeah. um, certainly yeah. with, with the, with the uh, myopia, improvements in, in the retinal epithelial cells can occur. That's a highly... Uh, highly um, proliferative tissue that can run out of telomere length, uh, and that's probably some of the reason that it, it's improved uh, the, the marker for macular degeneration. So we see that. Some people see improvements in libido. I think that's probably just from overall improvement in, uh, in, in just your energy and, and feeling well, although who knows. Um, um, but yeah, I still, like you said, I have some deep data to put uh, together the changes in telomere length in, you know, in, in, a, in a large enough number of subjects to correlate with other biomarkers in a statistically significant fashion. And that is on the list of things that I want to accomplish in the next couple of years. Um, all right. And then, okay, so I have a couple more questions here from, from that. Now, is this, are, is this taking t the TA65 product alone or is this in concert with a full approach? I mean, have also, you seen good, yeah, talk about both of those. Sure. So the first two were the, the uh, cohorts that had the supplement pack, and they were my patients in my practice doing other things like hormone optimization, exercise, et cetera. The randomized control trial in Spain 
there was none of that. It was they were not they were instructed not to do stuff like that, not to change anything they were doing. So it yeah. was just the molecule. As same with the uh, the one that hasn't been published yet, and same with the macular degeneration one. So um, you're hitting just one side of the equation there, as you mentioned earlier. If you're hitting the other side, we would expect to see potentially more robust improvements. Now, d d delivery for the work, the, the, the retinal changes, is that oral or do you, is, is, it in an eye, is it in a drop formula or is it? No, nope, uh, it's oral. Uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the oral um, gets into the, you know, the vascular system and then gets to the eye. It's uh, not drops. The only one that is topical is the, the skin uh, study that was done that showed some improvement in a number of markers of, of skin aging. Oh, and is that right? Okay. But, um, you know, you could imagine seeing improvements in skin as well, uh, which we do see, but you know, they're on a whole bunch of things in my practice, um, with oral, assuming it gets to the, you know, the dermis and potentially the epidermis through the capillaries and, and, uh, and helps with uh, epithelial cell division. Uh, I can see that happening as well. Do you use the topical in your practice? I do. I use uh, the topical in my practice on myself um, yeah. uh, because I think you can deliver a higher concentration to the, uh, you know, to the to the epidermis than you would probably uh, be able to get with uh, with oral. So, what are the primary indications for the topical in your practice? Just wrinkles, or for me, other? it's. Uh, I mean, uh, for me, it's just any any skin aging that you want to attack. Uh, I mean, anybody that's. I think it's good for any skin. The skin ages. Yeah, uh, and we all have damage that's been done. I gave a lecture probably five or six years ago at the uh, South Beach Symposium, a, a dermatologic meeting, uh, where I was asked to speak about the potential mechanisms through which uh, telomerase activation and lengthening of telomeres could affect skin aging. And there, there is a, a number of, of ways in which it can, and a decent body of literature, and that's probably why we saw the positive results. So if you want to slow down skin aging, even if you have pretty good skin right now, uh, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Yeah, right, right. What about things like actinic keratosis and stuff like we get me? And in those, you know, I think that you, this is, you know, theoretical, but I think that if you, those are, those can occur because of um, DNA damage. If you can shore up your senescent cells, I mean, get rid of your senescent cells. And if you can keep telomeres from getting shorter, because I think one of the biggest risk factors for cancer by far is and certainly epithelial cancers, which is the majority of cancers that we sort of treat in our, in our you know, kill people in, 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 uh, in Western societies, um, that if you can keep those telomeres longer, then you don't get that uh, DNA damage response. You don't get that aneuploidy and all the molecular uh, dis disarray that occurs when, when the chromosome tips can then start to fuse because the T loops are gone and they're naked ends. So... I, I think the actinic keratosis could potentially be decreased. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. Mechanistically, it sure does. And so I, I, I suppose one would want to try oral along with topical. Um, like, so what about dosing in these studies? And, you know, how are you dosing your patients in practice? And is there a variation or is there kind of a one size fits all? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the interesting thing about TA65 is that it was, its bioavailability is highly variable individual to individual. The company did a, a, a series of studies looking at um, the dose response in a group of subjects. And on one dose, somebody had a really nice C-max, another one was undetectable. Um, and I see this in my practice. Unfortunately, there's not a blood test to look for how much gets into your blood. So we have to use markers. Um, and, you know, the 250 IU, which is the starting dose, did work in that randomized control trial with showed telomere lengthening. Um, but I see in my practice all the time patients that come in and get started on, I start, start everybody on the 250 dose. Um, and then what I look at is telomere length and I look at senescent T cell count because you see a pretty early signal in reduction in senescent T cell count on TA65, like within the first three to six months whereas your telomere length may not happen as quickly. Um, and so if I don't see an improvement, then I assume that they're not getting as good a tissue level or blood level as, as, as I want, and then I double the dose. And I keep on doubling the dose until I get that improvement. Um, What's your, what's, what T-cell panel are you getting? I'm sorry. Yeah, so um, that's part of the problem. Uh, the, the senescent T-cells 
are not available through your typical Quest or LabCorp or most any place else. Um, they have to be at, uh, um, ordered through a clinical immunology laboratory. Uh, we use UCLA Clinical uh, Immunology Laboratory, and they do uh, they do you know T cells, B cells, break it down between helper cells and suppressor cells. But then the suppressor cells we break down into senescent suppressor cells and naive suppressor cells. And those are the two major things that can happen to your T cells. And they're associated with, in the case of accumulation of senescent suppressor cells, a lot of bad things, increased inflammation as, um, and increased mortality, in fact, uh, in a series of elegant studies that were done in Sweden. Um, the marker we look at is absence of C28, which is um, the co-stimulatory molecule that lines up next to the uh, T cell receptor uh, when it locks onto the antigen presenting cell. So you don't get a brisk response uh, that you need if you're CD28 negative. And that also, once that happens, telomerase doesn't get turned on in those cells and they're, they're effectively senescent. There is some controversy now in the literature about what are other markers that might be good for looking at a senescent T cell. Um, but I think the literature is really pretty good to show that if you have an accumulation of those senescent cells, your immune system is a little bit overwhelmed. It's producing more inflammatory markers. And if you have a significant enough accumulation such that the ratio of your helper cells to your suppressor cells goes under one, and healthy is where it's about two to one, that's associated with short-term increased risk of mortality. Um, so you can, as an easy marker, just look at a CD4 to CD8 ratio. You can get that in any lab. Mm -hmm. And as a screen, and if that's below one, then you really want to go for the more esoteric tests. And okay, the, okay. So um, you, want to see, you want to see at least a two to ones. I mean, eight, you want to see definitely eight. above one, uh, and 1.5 to 2.5 is about perfect. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Okay. That's what uh, that's a that's what we, that's what we like to see. Uh, okay. Well, listen. Are, in, in when you're youthful. So when so when would you start therapy? Like when would you do your follow up test? Uh, and, and, you know, if, if it's below one, and I'm trying to get the dose right, uh, and it's uh, particularly if it's an older patient with some concomitant morbidities, um, I'll do a follow up testing in three months. Uh, of the of the senescent T cells, you know, the more telomere length measurements you get, the better idea of what the trend is. Yeah. Um, you know, people talk about, well, it's gone up. You know, I went from 6.5 to 6.7. That shows it's working. I'd love to think that, but in fact, 0.2 kilobase is within the variation biologically. Yeah. Right. And, and so you really can't make much. You need three three to four points over the course of a year, year and a half, to really know what your trend is and then to really know whether what you're doing is affecting it. And that's why um, I do measure them uh, you know, annually at least and sometimes twice a year if they're on therapy and we're trying to get those, yep. uh, get an idea about what's happening with our therapy. Who are you using to measure telomere length? Yeah, so I use um, a company called Repeat Diagnostics in uh, Vancouver, Canada. Um, Peter Lansdorf uh, has, is one of the world experts in his lab. Uh, in, in doing this, they've been doing it for me uh, since 2007, and you know, much longer than that. The dozens of papers are, are published in their databases. Published, um, all the children's hospitals around the country, and I think in other parts of the world, send samples there for telomeropathies and for bone marrow transplant screening. Um, and you know, I've looked at probably 3,000 telomere length measurements from them, and, and you know, they're rarely is there a problem, something that doesn't make that much sense to me. Okay, fabulous. Um, Thank you. you know, there are other companies that I think are do a good job as well. LifeLink in Spain. Um, I would say those are both looking at the type of uh, fluorescence uh, in situ hybridization, uh, or what we call fish technology. Mm -hmm. I would stay away from the ones that are a lot of the literature uh, on large cross cross sectional studies is done using qPCR um, because in an individual. Looking at longitudinal testing uh, in the N of one, there's a lot more variation. So companies that offer that technology versus the, the fish, flow fish with repeat diagnostic, HT fish with, um, with life length, I would say is, is you know, it, it's a good screen. It's cheaper, like 100 bucks or something like that to, for, uh, for telo years. Um, but, um, but to follow them over time, you know, I, I think it, there's, Potentially a problem. I know the company, that company offers them over time, uh, and, and you know if they can show me the data, then I'd be happy to, to, to re restate my position. But for right now, my experience is pretty vast over the last 12 years with, with this company, and, um, and I think that they 
particularly in the extremes of high, low, really long telomeres and really short telomeres, they, they do a very, sort of the best job in the world. That's great. Okay, thanks. And again, folks, we'll link, we'll link over there. God, I'm really, you know, I think, um, <laughs> I think, Joe, you've gotten a lot of people pretty excited about the possibility of all of this and just, you know, another handful of tools in our practice. And you and I were talking before we hopped on to the podcast that this rate, the rate of loss, you know, over time is probably the better predictor of aging, not so much your baseline measurement of where your telomeres are, but just the rate of loss. Although I guess if you started with the baseline measurement and it was, you know, your telomeres were, you know, shorter than you wanted them to be for your age, that would be alarming but it's that so but so so basically what i'm saying is that you want to do measurement over time you want to stick with the same lab and the, the labs using the fish technology are in your opinion the better labs yes okay uh, and that's, that's absolutely right it's, it is the attrition and that you know that's that uh, paper that we were also talking about before we, we, we um went went live so to speak um um is that there's been some debate even the even the you know the Nobel Prize winners Elizabeth Blackburn and then Carol Greider has been said that you know a single telomere length measurement doesn't tell you anything and she quotes the fact that you could be um, you could do a blood test on somebody and, and their telomere length could be equivalent to a 70 year old level or a 40 year old level and, and they could be like 55 and that's absolutely true but that's because there's a wide variation in heritability of, of uh, not where there's a very strong heritability about 70 percent and there's a wide variation in the length that's, that's, that's inherited. So you can start with pretty short telomeres from your parents, but through lifestyle, through diet, through exercise, through whatever technologies you're bringing to bear, yes. you're not losing as much. Yes. But this paper that just came out is really important. Yes. Um, it showed that species lifespan, uh, average species lifespan, is highly correlated in a power function with telomere length attrition. People would always say, well, mice have really long telomeres, like 40, 50 kilobase is long, and humans are you know, as high as 10 to 15. Um, but humans live you know, many fold years longer. What's, what's the deal here? Well, yeah. it turns out that mice lose 7,000 kilobases per year, um, right. whereas 7,000 base pairs per year, and we only lose 50 base pairs per year. And they did it for elephants, for reindeers, for, for bottlenose dolphin. Um, all the way out to Mus musculus, the mouse. Now, I wish they had a few more time points in more short-lived species, uh -huh. um, but the data is highly correlative. I mean, it's an R squared of like 0.7, um, and, uh, and so what that tells me is that that one last thing that made us wonder about whether telomeres are important um, has been shown that it's, it's the telomere attrition length, and it's really through active biological mechanisms that it affects um, longevity, Life, you know, lifespan and, and, and health span because of the way in which it, it affects gene expression, which we didn't get that much into. Exciting stuff. So don't, you know, so don't freak. Well, you know, the other funny thing you and I were talking about was Scott Kelly, who was, who's the astronaut who spent a year in space and his, for whatever reason, his telomere, and he has, he has an identical twin brother who was landlocked. He was in space. He came home and his telomeres were significantly longer than his brother's for about two days. So that measurement could have gotten him really excited. But then when they did a, re a repeat, you know, unfortunately for him, whatever wildly beneficial thing, like a space-time continuum collapse for about, you know, 24 hours there, <laughs> you know, right. benefited him. And then, it, you know, and then he's back to normal. <laughs> so, yeah, well, serial measurements. Go ahead. Yeah, if we have time, I, I would like to address it because that's a really important point to make about looking at telomere length measurements. I, I don't, I don't have the exact data for that, but if it did change that much, then that was probably an example of what's called pseudo telomere lengthening or shortening. We're measuring telomere length in white blood cells in your peripheral circulation. Only about two percent of your total white blood cell count is circulating in your vascular system, but it's typically representative of what the ratios are in your tissues. However, under certain circumstances, like exhaustive exercise or potentially space, yeah. a different uh, mix of white blood cells could yeah. be circulating at that time, and they have very varying lengths of telomeres. Like the senescent T cells have really short telomeres. The naive T cells have really long ones. If because of something that happened changes the relative proportions of those, so it's not what they normally are in you, it can look like your median telomere length has gotten a lot longer, a lot shorter, Right. But in fact, the telomere length hasn't changed at all. 
That's fascinating. So if you all, you know, if you spike an illness and you just dump a whole lot of white blood cells, you might actually at that time, if you catch it early on, have a different length than you would after you recover. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly correct. And that's why I, I, I tell my patients and I tell our licensees and other people that I talk to, if a patient comes in with an illness or a recent, Ill, real, a relatively recent illness, don't measure their telomeres. Right. Or likewise, don't, them, don't do it after a marathon, perhaps. Right. Until you don't recover. do it after a marathon, any exhaustive exercise, um, you know, at least 24, 48 hours in a marathon, it would be like a week or two, I would wait. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and because you want their, their measurement in a, in a, in a, in a, in a homeostatic state. Um. Listen, I just I have a couple more questions. We're just we're just wrapping up here. So again, I just wanted to so so all things controlled. You're measuring telomeres in homeostatic state. You're getting repeat analysis. Um, you've got them on lifestyle, but you know you're you're adding in the TI sixty five product. You're seeing good outcome in not just telomere length, but um, clinical presentation and the other biomarkers that you're looking at. I mean, it sounds like you're. Well, I, I hope somebody jumps into your 5,000, you know, N of 1 database there and, and, and publishes some stuff, but it sounds like you're doing some really cool work and, you know, just getting some really lovely outcome with the, with TA65. We are, we are, we are, we are, you know, it's been a long, uh, essentially a 12-year journey now for me with, uh, with this, with, with this molecule. It's been pretty fascinating. I mean, my own telomere length has not changed in uh, 12 years. Uh, it's like, what's up? Wow. 0.1 kilobases. And I wow. have about... I have about mm, 13 measurements uh, um, and with some fluctuation, you know, yeah. that's what you have to take that. You have to look at the trend, yes. the sort of moving average. Uh, and I, but I do have some patients that have gone monotonically up, some that are, you know, not going down too fast. Um, and uh, and, and it's, so the information is gathered over time. I want to stress that. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and as far as the single telomere length measurement, when you're young, if it's really short, that's a big deal. Um, if you're older and it's really short, it's not quite as big a deal, but it's still a big deal. I mean, in, in a young person to be on the bottom 1%, when I talk about young, I mean talking about 20 to 40, uh -huh. then you're much more likely to have a, a, a mutation. The older person, they just might have a, a faster attrition, um, or they might not have inherited that much, but not have a mutation. Um, so those are the ways in which to look at telomere length measurements. I think an individual measurement is important, a single individual measurement, but much more information is gained by getting them over time, and then augmenting them with the, uh, the, the lymphocyte uh, subset panel, which looks at the varying types of lymphocytes uh, in, in the, uh, that contribute to that telomere length that you're measuring, because we're measuring the white blood cells, and then looking at other, how it affects other organ systems, because it really does. I mean, all of your organs get regenerated by the niche stem cells, and those niche stem cells can do their job only to the extent that they have enough telomere length to continue to divide. I think this is a game changer for a lot of folks listening today. So I'm very, very excited. Listen, and I have one more question if you'll just humor me. You know, you yeah. and I were kind of emailing back and forth a little bit. And you know, you know, as you mentioned before, I'm interested in epigenetics and particularly the Steve Horvath, the, the epigenetic, the DNA methylation um, clock. And you've started looking at that. You've started to use it in practice. You mentioned that you'd been doing, looking at the, the I think there's 353 CPG sites you know, DNA methylation spots that they're assessing in this biological aging clock, this new clock. And what have you been seeing? And, and how has TA65 influenced it? Well, I have uh, just started. I probably measured 20, something like that. I have a, about five or six that I have a year follow-up uh, tests on. Um, I, I think that what I've seen is um, some patients have, you know, three to five years older. I have one patient that was actually 10 years, but there was a lot of things in their medical history, stress, lifestyle that could, could explain that. I've had some people be younger. Um, how, how significantly younger? Um, the most I've had so far is five years, which is kind of interesting. I've had a couple on the upper end. Um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis telomeres, Horvath has published, others have published that that clock isn't necessarily correlate that well with telomeres. Um, and, you know, I think the new maven in this area is Morgan Levine, um, who was in Horvath. Right, right. Yes, Horvath, that's right. Now at Yale. Um, she has the, what's called the Pheno Age clock now that has, isn't commercially available. Yes. That looking at, uh, it, it more closely correlates because it was trained on a data set for health span markers. 
Um, I think it'll be more, more interesting to see what telomerase activation and telomere lengthening does to that, because uh, I would be surprised if that isn't affected. But, you know, I think that this, this, this clock is, is fascinating. She has, she has cautioned people um, in publications and interviews to be careful to, you know, focus on trying to move the epigenetic clock needle because we don't yet have the data to show that that will necessarily uh, uh, result in favorable outcomes. Um, so right now I'm really looking at it, you know, with my sort of super uh, early adopter patients that want to track this thing and know that the interpretation of it is going to be, um, you know, an evolving thing, sort of like genetic testing right now. Um, but it, it, it is fascinating. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I think that, Telomeres, the thing about telomeres is it sits right between DNA and, and epigenetics. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Telomeres are the only part of your DNA that actually change with age, unless it's getting mutated. I mean, it gets shorter. Right. Epigenetics is about how we express and how we, you know, how we, um, how we look at our, I mean, how our DNA is, 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 you know, is basically is expressed. So it's sort of an epigenetics, telomere, or what, we, what I call telogenetics, and then genetics. And there's the three areas that we can focus on. But I think there's more and more focus on the, the first two and less focus on you know, the fact that you're not necessarily um, stuck with what your genes are. That's exactly right. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to end. So folks, Steve Horvath is at UCLA um, and he developed this clock. We'll link, we'll link there. I do want to say, you know, I, and I also want to say that I don't think we can, you know, there was one study suggesting that there was some opposition between the clocks, but I, I, I think that that's just a representation of our newness in this area of investigation. But I, I mean, I think we're going to find uh, that they're related, you know, I mean, no, I, they're, I they're clearly related. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, I would agree with that. I mean, I think it really depends on which markers you're looking at. Um, it, it, it's a, the technology is fantastic. I think the, the, the proof of concept is there. We just, it just needs to be worked out further with larger data sets and more information. Very exciting, exciting times. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with me and, and, and sharing your, um, you know, your wisdom and your experience. Just really a, a good conversation. Yeah, it's been great. Um, great questions, and uh, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you very much. You're welcome.